All right, you may be seated. And as you find your seat, would like to invite you to open up your Bible with me to 1 Kings chapter 18. We're going to be starting in verse 17. So 1 Kings 18, starting in verse 17. As we start or continue our series, Elijah and Elisha, studying these two really interesting prophets this morning. If you have trouble finding 1 Kings, again, it's in the Old Testament. Don't feel bad about having to open up the table of contents in the beginning of the Bible. Uh, Find your way there, 1 Kings chapter 18. When I was growing up, one of my favorite places to visit on our trips to go see my grandparents in San Antonio was the Alamo. Now, how many of you in this room have ever visited the Alamo? Have there been many of you? Good, a good number of you. It's pretty impressive. I wasn't sure how many people would actually visit San Antonio. So that's good. One of my favorite places to visit. And in Alamo, there's a place that always intrigued me because I imagined myself standing there with all of those heroes, Davy Crockett and Jim Bowie, at this one certain spot imagining how I would respond. In the Alamo, as you're going to see on the screen, there's a place where there's a line that has been memorialized in the ground. Now, you can't read that under it, but I'll tell you the story of this very significant line. You see, in the waning days of the battle for the Alamo, the Mexican general sent a message to William Travis, who is the the commander of the Alamo. And in essence, he said this, you either will surrender or everyone in the Alamo is going to die. Well, Travis, when he received this message, he gathered all the defenders of the Alamo into one big common area and he read the terms of the conditions. He said, they've given us two options, surrender or die. At that moment, he took out his sword and he did a line in the sand. And he said, I have chosen to give my life defending the Alamo. And now every single one of you must make a decision as well. The line has been drawn. If you will join me and defend the Alamo, you come to this side of the line. If you would like to surrender, stay on that line. The decision you make is irreversible. Now, in that moment, the soldiers in the Alamo had no options. I mean, these are their two options. It's not as if they could kind of stand one foot on one line, one on the other, and say, I'm going to kind of do both. No, a decision had to be made. Well, as you come to 1 Kings chapter 18, it is that kind of moment for Israel. In fact, it is the pivotal moment of this guy, Elijah, who we're going to be saying. It's the pivotal moment of his life where he, in essence, draws a line in the sand and he says, Israel, who will you worship? Who is the real God? Will you serve the one true God or will you serve all these other gods that are before you? You have to make a decision. You see, Israel for a long time had been living as if they didn't have to make a decision. And as you look at our current context, our current culture, I think that's actually where a lot of people are with God. Maybe you have friends in the workplace, friends in your family that that they haven't rejected God per se, but they also have not chosen him either. They wouldn't say they're atheists, but they aren't sure what they believe about God. Maybe some are waiting to make a decision. I would imagine some of you who are maybe in junior high or high school, you think that way. I just, I will make a decision about who I'm going to worship later. It's not significant now. But Elijah comes to each one of us and he says, actually, that's not how it works. To not make a decision today is actually to make a decision. You have two options. Who will you serve? There is no middle ground. 
Now, as a reminder, the setting for these events that we're studying in 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18, and we're going to move into 2 Kings here in a couple weeks, the events of these occurred in around 800 B.C., which means they happened about 800 years before the time of Jesus Christ. Now, it was at a point in the Old Testament where Israel was really at a crossroads moment. Because you have to remember from their very beginning of the people of Israel, their calling, they professed belief in only one true God. But as we talked about last week, for the first time in their history, their key leaders were coming and they were pushing an agenda of religious pluralism. They were saying, you don't have to serve the one true God. You can serve an assortment of gods. You can even serve this assortment all at the same time and it's all good. The king at this time, a horrible man named King Ahab, was a perfect picture of the climate, the religious culture that he was trying to create. On the one hand, he kind of served God. Okay, You need to know that about King Ahab. He wasn't all bad. He he gave his two sons very God-honoring names. One of them was named Ahaziah, which means owned by Jehovah. His other son was named Jehoram. Jehovah is exalted. And so on the one hand, he kind of worshiped the one true God. But on the other hand, what does he do? He goes and marries the ultimate wicked witch of the West, this woman named Jezebel, right? We're going to read about her over these next couple weeks. This was a woman who was clearly not a God-fearer. She did not love the one true God. She worshiped many gods. And with this marriage, she had an agenda. And that was to this, to get rid of the God of Israel and to make known to Israel the plethora of all of her gods. And so as they get married, it's not a coincidence that all of a sudden these altars to these false gods begin to pop up all over Israel. This is what happened. She took the God-fearing prophets and had them exiled or killed. And she brought in her own prophets to begin to influence the people. Well, as what happens when leadership kind of takes that stamp, the people of Israel begin to see this and they begin to say, we better actually go and worship these other gods. If the king and the queen are doing this, this must be what's best. This must be what will make us prosperous. And so they began to go to the worship hour for the Baals, the worship hour for Asherah, all these other gods in their culture. Well, it's into this cultural mess, this spiritual climate, that God raises up one very ordinary person named Elijah. He raises Elijah up to be the representative of the one true God that is called to this mission. He is called to remind his generation that there is only one God worthy of worship. And as I said last week, I believe this study is so important. Because as I look into this room, I see many different uh, industries that are pictured in this room, many different families, many different social circles. And I would say this, I believe just as he did in that day, God desires to raise up many of you to be that one ordinary person that is used to represent him, to represent the reality that there is a true God that is worthy of worship in your neighborhood and in your workplace and in your circles of friends. He's raising us up for this purpose. Well, from the very beginning, that's what Elijah does. He went to Ahab and he said, here's the thing, Ahab. Your bell is supposed to be in charge of nature. He's supposed to be in charge of the rains. But here's the thing. The one true God is going to send a very severe drought. There's not going to be one drop of rain. There's not going to be one drop of dew until my God says for it to come. And that's exactly what happens. 
King Ahab didn't believe him, but that's exactly what happened. By the time you get to chapter 18, what we're studying today, the drought has been in the land for three years. I mean, imagine that. I mean, the drought that we just came out of in California, it was somewhat bad, right? But we had rain. Imagine three years, not one drop of rain, not one drop of dew, and you're in a society that depends upon crops. This was a very desperate time for the nation of Israel. In fact, people were starving. People were desperate. And God finally comes to Elijah, who is over with this widow being sustained. And he says, now is the time. It is time for Israel to make a decision. Who will they serve? Go and speak to King Ahab again. And so that's what we find in verse 17 when he goes up to to Ahab. If you would, please read it with me. It says, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And then Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now here's the issue. Ahab looks at Elijah after three years and he says, You are the troubler of Israel. That word troubler means one who wreaks havoc, like a pestilence or a debilitating disease. He says, you have done this to Israel. But I love it. Elijah is full of boldness. I mean, goodness, he's been sustained by God for three years. He knows his God is the real God. And so what does he do? He says, no, Ahab. While you think I'm the troubler of Israel, it is you. He's willing to say to this king what everyone else is too scared to say. Ahab is the problem. Why is he the problem? Because he has abandoned the commandments of the Lord. And then what does it say? And he has followed the Baals. Now, I want you to notice something about the text this morning. That word Baals is not singular. It's actually plural. You may already know this, but for a long time when I was reading the Bible, especially the Old Testament, and I came to the word Baal, I I would think of that like an ancient god like Zeus, a very specific god. But that word Baals is actually a, a very generic term for any god. In fact, what it actually means is a spiritual Lord. The Baal that they were worshiping here was a nature Baal, but that was far from the only Baal that they worshiped in those days. There was a fertility Baal, a military Baal, a beauty Baal, a sex Baal, an educational Baal, a prosperity Baal. Their society was full of Baals, full of false gods. Now, it's easy for us to look at that and say, well, those were primitive people, right? Those were ancient people that believed in all those false gods. They were primitive. We don't have that problem here. Well, here's what I would submit to you. That this people actually was more advanced in some ways than we are because they were acknowledging simply publicly what we will not all all acknowledge. And that is this, that every single person is a worshiper of something. Every single one of us in this room, every person in the city of San Francisco, it doesn't matter if they're religious or not, every person worships something. Every person has a Lord or a bell. We were designed as humans to be worshipers, which means this, that we all have something. We find something to which we assign ultimate worth. There's something that we look to for identity. There is something that we look to for, for satisfaction, for joy, for contentment. And in essence, we are serving that thing, hoping that it will bring the satisfaction that it promises. Many modern people like to think, I'm not a worshiper, I'm not religious. But what that reveals is that you don't actually know how your own heart 
works. You may not be religious in a traditional sense, but you, I guarantee you found something that gives you worth, identity, and fulfillment. And that, my friend, is your God. That is your Baal. I think the tricky aspect about this is that much of the time, these aren't bad things. I think this is especially true for Christians. Uh, we, we get into life and we say we want to serve God, but, but we have these good things that we turn into God things, right? These good things that God has given us that all of a sudden we begin to, to, to try to find our worth in or try to find our fulfillment in and our value in. Those become our bell. The things in their culture, the bell of work, the bell of sex, the bell of prosperity. Think about it. Is that any different than our culture today? They simply will say what we will not. They just don't. They, they labeled it as worship. We refuse to. If you're taking notes, I'd like you to write down this statement. The number of bells Jezebel tried to put into Israel is easily outnumbered by the number of bells battling for your heart. We look at passages like this and we think, well, they had all those gods. We're better than them. No, friend. The number of bells that are grabbing for your heart, that are grabbing for your attention, that are saying and crying out, find your worth in me, find your value in you, in your own heart, far outnumber the altars in Israel during the time of Jezebel. So it's in the midst of this conflict that Elijah comes and he says, right here, right now, a decision must be made. Who will you worship? Who is the true God? And the way he's going to show this is he proposes a contest. For those of you who have read the Old Testament, it's a really interesting story. He proposes, proposes a test of sorts to, to show what God is actually alive and what God actually has power. So we read that in verse 19. It says this, Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel. So he sets the grounds of the location of this test, Mount Carmel. And the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. My thought when I read that is, that is a massive table, 850 people. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and he said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Now, I think this picture that Elijah paints of, of the people of Israel is so helpful as we think about our own personal lives. Because he paints a picture of this person kind of weakly limping back and forth. I'm going to worship God a little bit. and I'm going to worship Baal a little bit. Weakly. They're not all in either way. They're not fully committed either way. They're just kind of limping back and forth. And Elijah comes to them and he comes to us and he says, here's the thing. Go big or go home. Either go all in one way or the other, but quit limping. Commit one way or the other. I think if he were in our culture today, he would look at each one of us and he'd say this. If money is going to be your God, if it's going to be your bell, then go all in on that. Serve it with all your heart. Do not give any of it away. Get as much as you can. If you have to cheat to get it, do that. If you have to sacrifice your family to get it, do that. Whatever it takes, go after money. Or maybe he'd look at us and he'd say, if beauty is your God, if beauty, uh, physical beauty is your bell, then go after it wholeheartedly. Work out 24-7 on your body. Nip it, tuck it, whole 30 it, crossfit it, tan it, tattoo it. 
Botox and do whatever you got to do, right? Go after it with all of your heart. If sex and pleasure is your bell, then forget the boundaries that God has given for your good. Leave your marriage to find good sex if you have to. Forget about your responsibilities to your kids and your family. Go live for that fantasy. If your bell is your career or is an accomplishment or is approval, go after it. Do whatever it takes to get them. But here's the thing. But if God is really God, if the one true God, if Christ is really God, then serve him wholeheartedly. Commit to him with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind. How long will you go on limping between two opinions? This week as I was studying this, this is such an important word for our culture. Because here's the thing, I believe even we as Christians who have submitted our lives to Christ, we, we sometimes find ourselves at this place of limping between our worship of God and our worship of the world. We're just enough into our relationship with God that we're miserable in the world, and yet we're just enough into the world to be miserable in our relationship with God. We're limping back and forth. For many of us, we say, listen, God is my God, but then we refuse to obey him when it comes to our money, which reveals what? It reveals who our true God is. Or here's one that Rachel and I are having to work through at this stage of family life. Uh, We say God is our God, but you know what? It's easy to become your God. Kid activities. The prioritization of our kids and their activities. I see this so often in our culture where we say God is God, but then we say we don't have time to make church a priority. God is God, but we're not going to make time. We're not going to make sacrifices so our kids can go to camp where they're going to be spiritually nurtured for an entire week. I'm going to, I'm going to, God is my God, but we're not going to sit down as a family and prioritize prayer, reading scripture together. Family activities, family events, kids experiences become our bell, our God. Sex is another one. Approval from others. They could go on and on. Elijah says, quit limping between the two. If you're going to go after Baal, go after it with all your heart. But if you're going to commit to God, commit to him with all of your heart. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon said it this way. If you're going to be saved, be saved all the way. I love that. If you're going to be saved, be saved all the way. Go after God with all your heart. So Elijah gives this incredible speech, asking them for them to make a decision. And what do the people of Israel do? Silence, right? He says, how long will you go on limping? And they just kind of sit there. We don't want to make a decision. We don't know what decision to make. So Elijah puts more evidence in front of them. Let's read it together. Verse 22. And I'm going to read the rest of the story. Really interesting. It says, then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire on it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire on it. You call upon the name of the Lord, your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire. He is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken, which means this. They say, okay, we're in. Let's see how this plays out. Verse 25. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. 
And so they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Bell from morning until noon saying, Oh, Bell, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. There it is again. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself. And that is what it means. He's talking about, he's saying, your God must be going to the bathroom. Wake him up. Or he's on a journey or perhaps he is asleep or he must be awakened. He's mocking them. Sarcastic. So sarcastic, maybe it is a gift of the spirit. I don't know. Verse 28. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of offering oblation, but there was no voice. Please hear this. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. So previously, the altar of the Lord at Mount Carmel had been destroyed, been replaced with this altar to Baal. It says this, Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the Lord came, saying, Israel should be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order, and he cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Now, there's a lot that could be said about this text this morning. But the first thing that I want you to see as we're looking at this is that that the odds were totally stacked in favor of the Baals. You may not recognize that, but everything in this passage paints a picture that the Baals had the advantage. We see this in four ways. The first way was this, that Elijah chooses Mount Carmel as the place for this contest. In 841 BC, there's an ancient document that calls Mount Carmel the Mountain of Baal. And so in order, the the reason that Elijah picks Mount Carmel is that this is the place where Baal was worshipped most. It was his home court advantage, just like the Warriors have home court advantage in the NBA Finals. He says, look, you can have home court advantage. We'll go to the Mountain of Baal. Secondly, we see that not only did they have home court advantage, but it was a contest based on fire or lightning, which was supposed to be whose specialty? The bell over nature. If he can do anything, it's lightning. It's fire from the sky. Third thing that we see, Bell had a lot more cheerleaders than God did. 
Can you imagine this scene? 450 prophets. If we have that line in the sand, 450 prophets on one side for Baal. And then who do you have? Elijah, all by himself. You see, popularity does not mean, uh, it does not equate with reality. That's especially true when it comes to the power of God. I would imagine if you were to look at this contest in today's perspective, they would show God's approval ratings were sliding down quickly. And yet that does not determine reality. Last but not least, Elijah goes and does the dumbest thing possible. He pours 12 jars of water. And these are not small jars. These are big jars of water onto this place where he was supposed to be making an offering. Everybody knows water does not help fire, right? Water puts out fire. So the odds were stacked against God. And yet when the bells called out to their God, what answer did they get? Nothing. Silence. No answer. Just like the people had been silent a moment before. But then God shows up, right? Elijah prays and the fire comes down. And all of a sudden the people are shouting, the Lord is God, the Lord is God. It's an amazing passage. The picture is this. This wasn't even a competition. It's not that God just defeated his enemy. It's not just God defeated the bell. He obliterated bell. He showed that this was not even a real competition, that there was only one true God. As we think about this, what does this teach us about the false gods we are tempted to worship? I would say this. It teaches us, number one, that false gods require strenuous work to please them. I want you to think about the false gods this morning. Don't make this about somebody else. Think about your own heart. What bells are you tempted to serve to find your identity, fulfillment? What are you tempted to give your life to? What are you tempted to assign the ultimate value in your life? If it's not God, I will tell you this, they will constantly cry out to you, work for me so that you can earn me. From morning to night, the prophets of Baal danced around the altar. They chanted. They did everything possible to get their God to respond. That's how false gods work. They come to you and they say, only if you work really hard to measure up will you become acceptable. Only if you obey me enough, only if you search for me enough, try to attain me enough, only then will you get joy or only then will you get salvation. I think about the 1.8 million, uh, 1.8 billion Muslims around the world that just entered into Ramadan recently, searching for the approval of Allah. In Islam, to, to be approved by Allah, you have to Meet requirements. There must be requirements that you fulfill, which always leaves you with this question. Have I done enough? Have I done enough to appease Allah? Have I done enough to appease? Have I done enough to the commandments? Have I prayed good enough? Have I done this? Have I done that? Gods like Allah come to you and they say, are you striving hard enough? If you don't, in the end, you will be crushed. But it's not just the formal religions that that say that. Think about the popular false gods like money or beauty or popularity. Do they not also constantly cry out to you, if you work hard enough to get me, then you'll be happy? And so we listen to their call and we work hard. Like slaves we work to have more money, to get into the right school, to get that right job, to become more beautiful. Beauty yells at you, work harder, diet more so that you can become that image on the advertisement so that you will finally be happy. Or think about you high school students, you college students, uh, this picture of approval. 
Approval calls out to you. It's constantly saying to you, if you just do enough for your friends, then you will be liked. Then you will get them to push that heart on Instagram. Approval calls out, work for me, dance for me, then you will be happy. And yet, do they ever deliver on their promise? No, they always ask for more. False gods require strenuous work to please them. But in the end, false gods always push you toward destruction. And that's our second point. When their dancing and chanting is not enough, what do they do? They call out for more. And what do we do? Just like those prophets of Baal, we begin to slash ourselves and cut ourselves. Our lives, our blood is poured out on the altar of these sacrifices, thinking, if I just give more, then I'm going to find what I really want. I will become beautiful. I will become more wealthy. I will become more adventurous. I will become more experienced. I will become what? If I just cut myself, if I do more and more and more. I'm just telling you, friends, false gods never provide the answers you think they will. Instead of giving you joy and happiness and satisfaction, they will always ask for more, and the end is destruction. But there is another way, and we see that in this passage. Because God loved the people of Israel, he reveals himself to them in fire, in this sacrifice that takes place. Why? He says it in there so that their hearts would be turned back to There is another way your heart can be turned back to God. But God, the true God, does not require strenuous activity or work from us. Instead, he works on our behalf. The true God requires faith in his work, not in what we can do. Whereas all the false prophets were dancing and prancing and doing all these things around the altar, what does Elijah do? He simply gets down on his knees. And he cries out to God and he says, God, do what only you can do. He puts himself totally dependent upon God, just like he had been learning for the last three years in preparation for this moment. I love what happens when God reveals himself. What do the people do? Do they keep silent? No. All of a sudden they're shouting, the Lord is God. The Lord is God. They can't hold back. They're ready to get rid of their false gods. But I want you to notice that their dancing and their shouting is not in order to earn God's favor. It's what? It's a response to God's favor in their lives. For those of you who are Christians in this room, I would simply ask you this question. Why do you even do the Christian things that you do? Why do you read your Bible? Why this morning do you pray? Why do you serve as a volunteer in the kids ministry or on the the greeting team? Why do you give tithes and offerings? Do you do it in order to appease God? Do you do it in order to earn his favor, to to get on his good side? If that's what you're doing those things for, let me just tell you, that's no different than those false prophets dancing and prancing around the false altar. Because that's the bell of religious performance. That is not the true God. All of those things should be a response to what God has done for us. Because when we realize what God has done for us, it changes everything in our hearts. It changes our actions. It changes us from the inside out. We realize God has done what we cannot do. He does the two things that these false prophets do. They were trying to work hard enough, and then they were trying to cut themselves hard enough for their gods to do something in response. But our God did all the work we need, and he took the slashing that we deserve. And think about that. Jesus did what we could not do. We could not perfectly follow the commandments. 
We could not perfectly live a sinless life. We could not meet God's standard. But he did. Jesus was perfect. He was sinless. He chose God every time. But not only did he do the work that we couldn't do, but he was slashed. He was cut on our behalf. These prophets thought if we suffer enough, we can appease God. No suffering of our own could ever appease God. We could not be forgiven of our sin on our own. So what happened? Jesus came and he took the slashing. He was cut down on our behalf. He took upon himself the fire of God, the wrath of God that we deserved as a penalty for sin. And in doing so, gives us the life that we do not deserve. There are far too many of us. Jesus has done everything, but we consistently rely upon ourselves. Some of you in this room would say, Ryan, I get all that. Jesus, his death, that's all ancient. I want to see fire. I want to have a miracle. I want fire to come down from this building. Then I'll believe and then I'll serve God. What greater miracle can there be than Jesus who said he was God saying, hey, I'm going to die for your sin and be raised from the dead and then going and actually doing it. God has given us evidence much greater than fire. He's given us himself. Now he calls us to rely on what he's done. You don't have to earn God's favor. He's given it. He's provided it. Respond to it with joy. You see, the true God brings about life. Far different from those false gods who promise things of being destruction. God brings about life. At the very end of this story, the people of Israel turn from their false gods. They deal with the false prophets. They're all killed. The sin is, in essence, is erased from the camp. And what happens? God brings the rain that he promised. God brings them life. Whereas they were looking for all these things from the false gods, the one true God says, now that I finally have your heart, I have your attention, here is life. Here is what I have promised. God still does the same thing today. Friends, if you will simply turn from the bells that your heart is worshiping and return to him with all your heart, He will bring lasting change. He will change you from the inside out. You will become like that fire and that you will be changed and that you will point people to the one true God again. You know, it's interesting in the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes down as what? He comes down like fire, right? Every single believer, every single disciple, the Holy Spirit comes like fire and he fills their life. Fire is a picture of the presence of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So what does that say about each of you? It means this, that some of the greatest evidence that the world around you will have is how you have been changed by God when you allow him to control your heart. You will be like that fire in the Old Testament because Christ will be in you. You will be changed. So 1 SF, the line has been drawn in the sand by Elijah this morning. You are surrounded in our culture by bells that cry out for you to work, to earn, to gain their favor. They promise life, but I will tell you this, in the end, they will be silent. On the day you stand before God, they will be silent. But there is a God who has sent Elijah into your life this morning to be a troubler. We don't like troublers, but this is a troubler that's in our life for our good. Because this story is meant to point us back to him, to draw our hearts back to him. I leave you this morning with the same question that was asked of Israel. How long, first SF, will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is Lord, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Go all in. Let's pray together.